0: Thank you, John. All right, gentlemen, I may move up there from time to time so I can check my notes, but uh, <clears throat> I've known John for a while, and he I forget exactly how it played out that uh, we were talking one day, and he said, hey, our church is starting to put together something for men, and I said, well, look, I've been at this for a little while. It's something you'd like me to come maybe speak to your leadership team. That's something I'd be willing to do. I'd be happy to do it. And I didn't hear anything from him for a while, and then he came back to me sometime later and he said, well, look, we're doing this breakfast thing. Would you like to talk to that? And I said, well, sure. What do you want me to talk about? Because I better it's better if I get the pulse of you guys. What would you like to hear? What would be helpful to you? And he came back to me a few weeks later and he said, well, there's probably one or two things. You can speak on the value of leadership or you can speak on the value of men's ministry. And so I went both of those topics. So I thought, well, let's see if we can put them together. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to try to make a case for why leadership is absolutely essential to anything, therefore it's essential to men's ministry, and why men's ministry, and I apologize for that phrase because it's such a lame phrase, but I don't seem to be able to lose it You come up with anything more creative. So we're just going to be stuck with men's ministry for the morning. Why that is such an essential part of every man's life. And, and if that true, if leadership is essential, And if men's ministry is valuable, how can we combine the two? What can we learn about that? Before we get into all of that, I just want to talk for a couple moments on change. And there's some notes there. If you choose to follow along, you can. I think I'll try to sort of follow the notes. But if you'd like to take some of your own notes in addition, that's great. But a couple thoughts on change. So we have three responses that any of us as human beings can can take when it comes to change. We either choose not to change which in itself is a misnomer. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I can receive an invitation to change. And incidentally, we're all receiving invitations to change every day. You turn on the television, they invite you to buy something you didn't have before, they want you to buy it now. That's change. They convince you that you didn't know something and you should know something and you need to go somewhere to learn that thing. That's can change. And so every day we're getting invitations to change. And we do a cost-benefit analysis every day. Do I think that the benefits of making this change would outweigh the costs that I'm going to incur in order to make the change? And then we make a decision accordingly. But back to the idea of we can choose not change, and I said that was in a misnomer, the reality is that change comes to us. The only decision we have is, are we going to be on top of the change, or is the change going to be on top of us? As culture changes, are we going to be creatively and intelligently responding to the change? Or are we simply going to let the change be a groundswell that overwhelms us? But then we get into then the two types of change. And we're all familiar with incremental change. Incremental change is, I did one sit-up last week, I'll do two sit-ups this week, I'll do three sit-ups next week. And incremental change is good. Maybe you used to read your Bible a little bit, now you're more consistent in it. Maybe you used to attend church occasionally, and now you're more consistent in it. Those are examples of good incremental change. We need that. But there is a challenge to incremental change, because in the same way as it didn't require much of you, but a slight change, it's very easy to drift back into the thing that you were doing. In other words... Only small incremental changes make it likely that if something else interesting comes along, you'll move right back to the way you were doing something before. So we have to look at a second kind of change, which is a more, we'll call it radical change. That is, I wasn't in any way doing something, and I realize I can't get to where I want to go from where I am now, and there's no way I'm going to make an incremental change that's going to get me there, it requires a radical change. It actually requires a different starting point from which to get to there. So for those of you who have at some point in your past said, I do, to Jesus, that was kind of a radical change. There was a day when you we weren't that, and then there's a day when you are that. And from that point on, that can take you to places and directions that you couldn't have gone before. So that's an example of radical change. So as you listen to all this stuff that we're going to talk about this morning, you need to decide how do I respond to what I'm hearing? Is there enough evidence to compel me to make any change? And if so, then what kind of change? Is it going to be gradual, small change? Or is the of the day that I say, I just need to stop doing whatever it was and start doing this? And as we move on through this, let's take the first thing that we wanted to talk about, which was leadership. How many of you were actually intimately involved from the beginning in planning this practice? Okay, if your hand didn't go off, then you are living testimony to the fact that compelling leadership works. Because you're sitting in a room right now with the lights on, with a full stomach, because somebody else said, this is something important that we should do. And you're here because they convinced you that it was important to do. Because otherwise, what you're saying is that you would have likely been sitting in this (coughs) empty room this morning with the lights off on the floor because there wouldn't even have been chairs set up. You would have been here by yourself in the dark on the floor if it weren't for the power of effective leadership. So if effective leadership can get you here this morning, then effective leadership can take people to places they've never been before. Just let that settle in because that's important. Something else that we need to embrace because no organization, no church, no ministry develops without the buy-in of those who are going to be served and without the contribution of those who are going to help and to lead. And here's the typical response for men: I would like to when I would like to when my life is simpler, when this phase of my life is done, when these financial challenges are through. I would like to help. I would like to participate. Heck, I might even want to help lead at some future. Time in my life. And all that is predicated on this assumption that somehow, at some future unspecified point in your life, your life is going to be so aligned that you will have opportunities that you don't have now. Does anything in your life actually suggest that that's true, though? Does anything in your life suggest that as you move through life, life gets simpler and less complicated, and therefore allows you more time to do things? Well, if you're like me, the obvious answer is no. And so the only conclusion then is if you want to be part of something, if you want to be part of anything, and if you want to make a contribution to anything, then you're going to pay a price for it, whether you pay it now, or 10 years from now, or 20 years from now. But here's what else we know. When you're given opportunities, when a man like that offers you the chance to become more involved in something, and you say no, or you say, I'd like to, but later, it makes it easier for you to say no the next time, and no the next time, and no the next time. So as you think about this stuff this morning, be confident in this. Your life is never going to be any simpler at some future point. You can either accept the challenge to become involved either in leading or in serving or in simply participating in something now, or you may never do it. So, then let's get into what we would say are the values of men's ministry. And I'm going to break this up into three basic things. And the first is why do we need any kind of men's ministry? And why do we need some sort of intentional leadership organized around ministering to men? And here's the first assumption. And I'll say it like this the fingerprints of men are all over everything in this world. Just think about that. Uh, do you remember back in 2007, 2008? The whole stock market fiasco, the real estate blow up. Right? Now, if, if you think back a little bit and you recall those people who were gradually sort of kind of halfway held accountable, <clears throat> you didn't see many women giving accounts before Congress and explaining how this all happened. You mostly saw men. Right? Oh, anything to do with sex trafficking or the sex slave trade, it's not because there's a profusion of women that are so consumed with lust that they can't wait to get something else in their lives. It's a man thing. And it's not like that I'm not beating up on men because I'm one of them. But for good and for bad, the fingerprints of men are all over everything in the world that you live in. So ask yourself this question. If the fingerprints of men are already all over most things in this world, for good or for bad, does the world look like it is being touched and handled well? Or does it look as if maybe the people who handle the world could use a little bit more help with the handling thereof? Because if you think that there's possibly some room for improvement, whether it's at the family level, or the community level, or the church level, or at civil society and government level business level, any of those, if you think that there is some potential for improvement in the way those things are handled, then what you're saying is there's probably some need for helping men to touch and handle things more effectively. So that's the first case for why you might want to consider consistent ongoing ministry demand. But here's the next one. And I probably haven't offended too many people yet, so here's my first chance to really do it right. We have to look at the maturity process of a typical male. So most of you already know this next piece of information. This is is not new news to most of us, but it takes until approximately the time a guy is 25 before the two hemispheres of his brain are completely fused. In other words, it takes until about the time a man is 24 to 26, somewhere in that range, before a guy is actually able to make complete, logical, rational decisions. So when you look at a young guy and you think to yourself, what was he thinking? Listen, don't take offense at this. This is all right there with you. When you look at a young guy and you look at his behaviors and you say, what was he thinking? You know what the answer is? He wasn't. It just, it, he couldn't help himself. It's just all the wires weren't going to where they needed to go. I'm smart. <laughs> but now think with me about this, if that is true, if it's true, and it is, because it's been well documented, if it's true that a typical guy is well into his 20s before he is able to effectively make logical, rational decisions, how many decisions does a typical young man make before the time he's age 25 that will set the course of the rest of his life? His choice in education, at least his initial choice in career. His choice is a mate for life, perhaps. I realize that's being prolonged a little bit more, but years his choice in a mate for life. In other words, at a time when a man is still not fully equipped to rationally, logically, systematically think through things to a logical end and make a good choice at that time in his life, he's being asked to make some of the most significant choices in his life. God. But it gets worse. Because you think, okay, it's age 25, age 26, the man is mature, but that's not so. There's a great deal of new science that is suggesting that a man is up toward 40 years of age before before he's acquired emotional maturity. So what's emotional maturity? Emotional maturity is how I process my anger when I do it. Emotional maturity is how I process my jealousy, my fear, my raw cowardice in response to something. Is what I do with the feelings that I have about something. And we all know, we've all been friends to, perhaps we are the guy in the room who's responded really badly to anger. The impulse of anger rises up with us, and we don't know how to process it. And we've all seen examples of people doing things poorly as a result of processing their anger badly. Or how about jealousy? Or how about greed? Feeling the blank. That means that a man is upwards of 40 years of age before he is in complete possession of everything that he needs to process and interpret life well and live successfully. Do we want that guy, which is all of us in the room, do we want that guy to live his life unsupported without any sources he can draw on without any guidance from anybody else? And do we think that that is the best way to equip men to touch and handle their worlds well? And if you can say, I think that's the perfect right then we don't need men's ministry. But if you see some flaws or some potential to improve, then you might think, okay, maybe we need men's ministry." I want to make one more point before we move on. And that is, as you look around the room, and every one of us, and you can take a quick minute to scan it, every one of us in this room knows how to do some things well. I mean, we've gotten pretty good at it. You can think of some things, I know this, I know this, I have this skill set, I understand this thing about life, and I can do this pretty well. It doesn't mean that we're not learning, it doesn't mean we're not improving, but you know how to do some stuff well. The next part is not frustrating. There's a whole other body of stuff that you have story after story after story to validate the fact that you don't know how to do it well. And I'm not just talking about home improvement projects either. Maybe you don't know how to do relationships really well. Maybe there's something else in your life you don't know how to do really well. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's marriage you don't know how to do really well. I don't know what it is. But while there are certain things that you're great at, there are certain things that you don't do well at all. And all you have is a trail of stories behind you of how not to do it Incidentally, there's a lot of those in the Bible. Pay attention. But then there's a third body of stuff. It's the body of stuff that you just don't think about. I mean, you kind of know that you ought to know something about it, but you really don't know that much about it. And you don't really give it much thought until the day when all of a sudden you discover, Wow, I wish I knew something about this. Right? Marriage is kind of like that. Everybody gets into marriage and they think they understand a little bit about what marriage is like. And six months into it, they discover, wow, I should have learned more about this. What do you do with it then? It's it's almost like, right, do you want the guy that's driving 70 miles an hour down the freeway to discover for the first time? I don't think I know much about driving. And yet that's what we do with men all the time. And then finally, there's a whole body of stuff that he not only doesn't know much about, it, he's completely clueless as to the fact that he should know anything about it. In other words, he is consciously and subconsciously completely ignorant of it. Not one final thing before we move over. That collection of knowledge and understanding and wisdom is different from this man in the room. He knows things that he doesn't. You're completely in inactive things that he isn't. There's stuff that you only know a little bit about, and he knows more. What do we do with that collective knowledge if we all go our separate ways and we don't have, and this is a critical term, a multi-generational ministry that allows men of all ages to come together and share their experiences, what they know, what they don't know, to allow older men to speak into the lives of younger men and say, "Look, when I'm a..." At this point in my life, I didn't know that much about this. Wow, it's really blown up on me later on in life. It might be helpful for you to have a few understandings about this. Do we have a community where men can come together and talk about life, about their inadequacies, their struggles, what they're pretty confident about? And if not, why? And would we want. And what I'm going to suggest to you, and this is a phrase that's not new to many of you, in the same way that we say the local church is the help or the hope of the world, a local church men's ministry can be for many men the hope and the help that they need to become more effective touching in touching their lives. Alright, let me just check my notes quickly. Make sure I haven't left anything important out. Huh? Alright. So if, if we... Make the assumption that men's ministry, and for the time being, I'm going, to, I'm going to assume that maybe I've made enough of the case that you would buy into the fact that men's ministry is helpful. Well, then, what is that? What is it, exactly? What do we mean when we say, what is a men's ministry, and, and then later on we'll talk about how it's done? Well, here's the first thing. A men's ministry is the system or the process that helps to create spiritually fit men. Now, most of us get physical fitness, right? Fitness is What? Fitness is, in in a nutshell, it is the ability to ask of your body to do things, and your body responds favorably, and it does them. So how do you tell when you're not physically fit? It's when you run up the flight of stairs, and you're hanging onto the rail at the top and gasping for breath. You're not physically fit if you can't run up the flight of stairs and not, not be winded. Right? You need some help there. How do you determine if a man is spiritually fit? How do we determine what that constitutes? And then we have to say, how do we help a man get through the process from wherever he is? Because you have to admit, you're not born physically fit. You don't stay physically fit by accident. It requires an intelligent process to remain physically fit. Consider this there's certain people that work out at the gym, right? They can lift a thousand pounds. I realize that's hyperbole. They can lift a thousand pounds of the chest. But if you ask them to stand up and run a little bit, they can. You can be unbalanced in your fitness. We want men who are spiritually balanced and fit. And that balance is between two things that the church for generations has struggled with. It's the balance between doing and being. So without boring you to death, I I can sort of map out very quickly the history of men's ministry. So for years, men's ministry was that sort of subset of the church what, that was the useful appendage that was called on to do stuff whenever stuff needed to be done. I.e., there was a hole in the church roof. Well, it was the men's ministry. They climbed up on the roof and fixed the hole in the roof. Um, in the roof. There was there was a missions project to be done somewhere in the world, and so men were sent on to do that. But there was less emphasis placed on the being and the becoming part of it. There was a great deal of emphasis on the doing, and they were called to do But they were never invited to become and help to become. So then, sometime back in the 80s or the 90s, we shifted to this becoming ministry. It started in stadiums and gradually tripped down to the local church level, and we became all about becoming. And so we started to become more knowledgeable, more wise in the scriptures, more wise in how to deal with human relationships, but we sort of lost a little bit of the doing part. And so we spiritually fit man is a man who is well balanced in his doing. He doesn't just have a lot of technology. He not just have a lot of wisdom. He's balanced in his doing versus becoming. And the way to tell that is, or the way to inspire that is perhaps To create within men a hunger to continue to grow and do more effectively. Both of those. To continue to grow and to do and to do both more effectively. Down a little bit more into a more granular sense so you can understand it. Spiritually fit men are men whose spiritual lives are fit. Spiritual life consists of four things, are on your note. It is my relationship with God, my relationship with myself, my relationship with all of people and humanity, and my relationship to the Creator. Now, if you think about it, those are the four things you actually touch, whether physically or mentally. Those are the four elements or the four aspects of life that you will actually touch. A relationship with God, a relationship with yourself. Can you think of a time when you weren't well related to yourself just to put this to the test? Yeah, we've all been extremely disappointed with ourselves at one time or another. Finally, a relationship, the relationships that you cultivate with other human beings and finally your relationship with the Creator. And so you need to be spiritually fit in all four of those aspects or elements of this world. And you need to do it, here's where it becomes even more complex. The scriptures refer to us as multi-faceted beings. We're not all physical. We're not all mental. We're, we're a combination or a compilation of things. And so all of my humanity needs to relate to all of the world and do it well. And that's a tall order. It's, it's something that we're working for in the rest of our lives. For the remainder of your life, we'll be working on this. How does heart, soul, mind, strength relate well to the four elements of this world, God, himself, other human beings, and the created order? How do we do that, do it more effectively? How do we learn more to becoming? How do we do more than doing? And so that's the essence of the product that a, man, a man's ministry is trying to produce. And that leads us to the final thing, which is, okay. Like, hey, how do we actually go about doing this? So hopefully I've made the case so far, justification, we could use men's ministry, because the men handle so many things in life. We understand now what we would be trying to produce with a men's ministry, a spiritually fit man, the way I just described it. But how do we actually go about doing this? And this is where it gets kind of difficult, because of the nature of men, because of the nature of society. So I've used two illustrations. One of them, I think, is at least found on your paper. The first is the airline illustration. We'll call it metaphor. So I don't know if any of you have to travel on business or for pleasure or do it with some regularity, but traveling by air requires a certain set of assumptions. right? You need to know how this is done. If you fly at all, and you get into a strange airport, You have no idea what you're doing when you get there. And you have to rely on some signs that are there to tell you baggage claim is here, the restroom is there, the next concourse over that you need for your connecting flight is somewhere else. And it's all set up so that you, as a man coming into that airport terminal, cold, never having been there, you'll be a little uncomfortable, you'll be a little unsure, But you can guide your way through the process and there are people there to help guide you through the process so that you can get to the destination on time and successful. Those are key phrases that you want to remember. Spiritually fit man is the destination. How do we help men to become spiritually fit? So we need to create a system that they can walk into cold feeling a little bit strange, a little bit uncertain. They've never seen the people. They don't understand the processes. They need to learn all this. But we need to make it manageable for them so that they can navigate their way through the process. Does that make sense to you so far? But I want to tie this together with another metaphor that can be extremely helpful. If you follow Olympic athletes at all, You'll know that in every four years, when they do the Olympics, and they have the stories, a lot of the stories are human interest stories. It's the story about the mother and the father that sacrificed to send the great athlete off to some training camp somewhere. It's the story of the young man, or the young woman, who makes significant sacrifices to go to a training camp somewhere, right? We've all seen those stories. They're really compelling. Honestly, they make watching the Olympics just a little bit more fun and engaging. And we admire these people because of the sacrifices that they've made. Most men are not willing to make that level of sacrifice. And so what I would suggest is this, that every single church that wishes to become the hope of men and the hope of their community they need to create a best-of-class way to help men in their church to achieve spiritual fitness. Because most men don't have time to travel to go to some great place. Most of men can't just quit the rest of their life to travel off to some place to get trained. Most men that you and I know, including all of us in this room, we've got lives to live and stuff to do and kids to care for and wives to attend to and businesses to run and all that other stuff. And in the mix of all that, hopefully we have some desire to become more spiritually fit or spiritually mature. And so any church that is willing, it should be their mission, amongst other things, to develop some sort of strategy at the local level within the common man's reach that invites him to become part of the process, that while it will be odd to him at first, peculiar, a little bit strange, but uncomfortable, that gradually, because it's a best-of-class situation that understands all men's reservations, it will help ease him into a process where he can begin to grow, and that whole process makes sense to him. How many of you in life, in, in this room, like to lose at life? How many of you like to say, yup, I didn't do that right? How many of you want to come back to a place where you lost at life? See, we want to set up some sort of a structure that allows men to feel like they are participating in a way where they are succeeding They're gaining ground because in the heart of every man is a desire somehow to succeed at some level, to win at some level. And we need to help set up a structure that allows a man to walk in, sit down, gradually become comfortable, and feel like he's making headway toward a destination. And we need to create a clear picture for him of why that destination is valuable. So every day... Every day, all across the world, there are people who wake up and choose to stay at home. Why didn't they go somewhere? Because the perceived value of staying at home to them, and it might be great, but the perceived value of staying at home was greater than the value of going somewhere. Every day, right now, you made a choice not to travel to California today. Why? Because the perceived value of staying where you were is greater than the perceived value of going to California. In other words, the people in California didn't really make a very good case in their life today for why you should be in California. We need, as leaders, this is where we pull the leadership thing back. We as leaders need to make a compelling case that convinces men that the place that they're going to go to when they are more spiritually fit is more desirable than the place where they are now. And that all the sacrifice and all the difficulty that they're going to go through to get there is worth it because being there is better than being stuck where you are. But that comes the fact that help have that. Because you see most men are kind of comfortable with it. And I want to tell you, if you embark on this journey, what you're going to find is that there is no class of people more difficult to reach in the church. I, I, I hate to say this, but there's no class of people more difficult to reach than men. Because men are, as that phrase goes down, I've heard in cats, You have all heard that phrase. Well, trying to inspire men to come together, to discuss things, to learn together, is about like choosing to herd cats. Because every man that I know, and most of the men that you know, are rather lone, wolf, roguish kind of people that want to go their own way and do their own thing. And you will hear every excuse under the sun when I mean, you invite people to participate in something today. Some legitimate, some not. And that's why I started with the process of change. Because our job as leaders is to <coughs> demonstrate to people the value of the change and to help walk them even through the change process. So I hope all that was helpful. I hope I've been brief enough. Uh, have I? Have I Stay within my I Okay, so gentlemen, what I would like to do, and then somebody else I'm sure will come up because I'm not a guy who does the closing thing, but uh, I would like to pray for us all just quickly.